Well, good morning. This is a great opportunity to look into God's word together today. I'm excited to see you people here, and I'm also excited to know that there are people watching us in many different places today online. I'm reminded of the passage in Hebrews where it says there's a great cloud of witnesses. And so if you can imagine that while we worship this morning and as we look at God's word, there is a cloud of witnesses who are also participating. So we say good morning to you as well. Well, today I want to continue what has been for me a series of sermons when I get the opportunity to speak. This series of sermons have been on the person and the life of Moses. And so this morning we'll be looking specifically at Exodus 14. For those of you that are pretty familiar, that should be something you find rather quickly, but for those of you that the scripture is still something that's a, a learning thing for you, the book of Exodus is the second book in from the very front of the Bible. It's the second book of the Old Testament. So as you're getting there, I'll do just a little bit of a review. In chapters one through four of Exodus, we get kind of a whirlwind tour of the plight of Israel after Joseph. In the first chapter, we find out that there's a baby born that is named Moses, and because he's such a beautiful child, his parents want to preserve him. And so through the miraculous hand of God, this child is preserved and in fact is adopted as a part of the royal house of Egypt. Moses grows up in that house and then at the age of 40, he comes across an Egyptian beating an Israelite and he intervenes and in that intervention kills that Egyptian and buries him in the sand and then very quickly finds that his deed is known and then he flees. And so he has 40 years in the wilderness where he is a shepherd and he feels like his life is over. And then at the age of 80, he's walking along in the desert and he encounters a sight that he just has to see. And if you remember when we talked about this, it warmed my firefighter heart because it was a bush that was burning but wasn't consumed. What guy wouldn't want to know what's going on? So he goes to the bush to try to see what's happening. And then out of the bush, a voice comes, and he begins to understand that this is the voice of God, the voice of the God of his fathers. And he is told that he is standing on holy ground and that he was to remove his sandals. And now maybe you don't remember, but that was about a year ago, last month, and I asked you to remove your shoes. I'm not going to do that today, but I remember that some of you gladly complied and some of you thought I was crazy. And you might be right. (laughs) Now, Moses has been given a mission, and that mission is to go to Egypt and to set the people free. And he's met with the people, he's convinced them that yes, in fact, he is sent from God, 
and that God has heard their groanings and their desire to be free from their burden of slavery and that he has come to be God's instrument to make that happen. And so we've seen that he has gone to Pharaoh and he's demanded that the people of Israel must be free to go into the wilderness to worship their God. And then through an ever stronger series of plagues, a final ultimatum has been given and Pharaoh and Moses part with harsh words. Pharaoh says, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Hot words indeed. Hot words that were quickly chilled to freezing by the 10th plague, which was the plague of death for every firstborn of every household not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. And so a much subdued Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron before him by night. And he says to them, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Now, if you remember, the last time that we were together, we tried to guesstimate the number of people that departed Egypt. Exodus tells us that the number of men of military age was 600,000. Now, each of those, if, if each of those men were married, that would double the total to 1.2 million And if each of those people had at least one, maybe two parents alive, well, you can see how the number just continues to grow. So I wanted to give you some idea of what that might look like. And so here is a clip from a day you might remember in early 2014.
Some of you were there, weren't you? I think there were some families from here that took the time to go and be at that. So you heard him say that they, uh, they thought they might have 300 to 500,000. And roughly, the, the closest estimate they could come up to was about 750,000 people. So, if our guess is near the mark, what you saw, all those people, would be about a third and maybe a half of the number of people that came out of Egypt. That's kind of a huge group of folks. Well, here's a stunning verse in the passage that's found in Exodus 12, 39. It says, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Parents, have you ever set out on a camping trip in the mountains without a tent or food or warm clothing? That might be a real short campout. How about youth leaders? Have you ever held a youth retreat and not given not one thought to the food that will be needed for that weekend? Now, unless you're pulling off a planned famine, your weekend will be indeed memorable, but perhaps not for the reasons that you intended. What could have happened that they made no provision for themselves? Was there a breakdown in communication? Didn't they know that something was happening, that they were going to soon be free? Was there a complete lack of faith in Moses? And they thought, well, he'll never succeed, so let's not even bother. Perhaps being slaves, they could not actually begin doing any preparations because their taskmasters wouldn't allow them to secure the items that they might need for a journey that would be of unknown length and unknown time. Still, to our ears, this is a stunning and colossal failure on the part of the leaders of Israel to prepare them for what they hoped was coming. And the lack of provision doesn't appear to be just food either. It would impact their organization. The only communication system available would be word of mouth. Imagine counting on word of mouth for passing on directions. Have you ever played the game called telephone? You get a line of 10 people and the first person in line gets something whispered to them and then they have to turn to the person next to them and whisper it to them and, and so on and then at the very end the last person has to stand up and say what the message was. That's with 10 people. Imagine trying to do this with hundreds and thousands and possibly even hundreds of thousands. There are many other impacts that have to be considered. How would older persons be transported? Who would organize the flocks and the herds? What would be their route of travel? Did anybody scout ahead to see if there would be water for 1.5 to 2 million people? Who would be responsible for latrine duty? And if you don't think that's important, where would women who were about to give birth travel in the crowd? Would they be in the front, in the middle, in the back? Who would attend them? 
Was there anyone assigned to burial detail? If you don't think that's important, just look at your Sunday paper, or I'm not sure if it comes on Monday, but there's a vital statistics section that lists the number of people that have died in the past week. And in Snohomish County, which is a county of about a million people, there's roughly 100 a week. Somebody would need to deal with that. So you remember when I suggested that the entire congregation just get up right now and walk down to Hagen's as is? You remember how you resisted that feeling? Didn't think that was a great idea? Well, imagine being told it's time to get up and leave and have no idea where you're going, when you'll be back, when you will arrive, where are the preparations? So Pharaoh Pharaoh has set them free and out they go. And the scriptures say that they went out in martial array. That is, their fighting men, that group of 600,000, went out in some semblance of order and rank. So they marched, and I don't know if they had a drummer to help them march or if they had a a cadence that they called, but but it it says that they went out in martial array, that they they were proud of what they had become. And one might assume that the rest of the people went out in mass. Now remember, they were gathered from all kinds of different places in Egypt, so there had to be some sort of a rallying point or perhaps several rallying points where they were to gather and then eventually join the entire group as they went marching out. So they we're told in the book of Exodus that as the uh, people of Israel go out, they ask the Egyptians for, uh, for them to donate to them, to give to them. And it says they gathered gold and clothing and food whatever the Egyptians were willing to give them. And it says in Exodus that the people of Israel plundered the Egyptians in this way. So let's pick it up here in Exodus 13, starting at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistine, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkot and encamped at Etam on the edge of the wilderness. It appears that there was one provision made by Moses. Someone had to be assigned to that bone duty of carrying the bones of Joseph. In the movie, The Ten Commandments, it shows six men carrying a coffin-like Uh, sarcophagus on poles on their shoulder. Now that might be good going down the aisle of a church or maybe from the hearse to to the cemetery, but can you imagine carrying something like that for day after day after day? That would take some organization right there. So picture this scene. Upwards of two million people 
depart their life in Egypt. Everything they knew, all the familiar routines, even the foreseeable future has now been brought short into a upset and unsettling daily routine. There weren't much in the way of provisions. We've talked about the organization. And so I guess what you do is you just follow the folks in front of you. Perhaps you're one of the lucky ones who is close to the front where you can see the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that symbolizes God leading the people. But then night comes and you set up your tent, assuming that you have one, and you set it up wherever you happen to be, and then in the morning you set out again in the same fashion. Hopefully you've had something to eat and drink. You can't tell me that after a few days, maybe even after a week or so, that there wasn't some unhappiness about this new life. Some dissatisfaction with the fact that instead of going north along the Mediterranean, we're now headed south, and you can see off in the distance the Red Sea. Certainly, there was at least one wag in the crowd who couldn't help asking everyone he meets, who's the clown in charge of this circus? But it gets better. All too soon, they are stuck on the shore of the Red Sea for the Egyptians have come out to take them back. And so now there is the sea, an impassable sea, and an army of Egyptians behind them. The Egyptians have at least 600 iron chariots and many more wooden ones, and it does not look good. We find that the people of Israel begin expressing their feelings. And their conclusion is this, found in Exodus 14, starting at verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now we know because of what it says in the passage, that it was God who was leading the people. He was the one who led them to a spot between what's called Migdal and the sea. God had led them to the place where they were pinned between the Egyptian army and the sea. But sometimes, sometimes God does something that you and I would call foolish. Now, I would love to spend a great deal of time going over the parting of the Red Sea. I'd love to figure out how God might have done that. I'd like to spend time discussing the details of getting over two million people at least through the sea. But it would really be only speculation. So what I'm going to do is to try something a little bit different. noticed a little bit ago I mentioned the Ten Commandments and perhaps you have seen that film. And there's a really interesting depiction of this section that we're looking at today. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a clip from the film played, but I'm gonna have all the sound down so that we don't have to listen to the music and the dialogue. And then I'm going to read the passage of scripture and try to sync it up with what's happening on the screen. So it's a little bit of an experiment, but I wanted us to hear what God has to say about it while we watch what Hollywood has to say about it. Moses declares, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, his horsemen, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. There's the bones of, Mo- of Joseph.
The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. She must be the last person. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. All right, well I realize that was a bit dark and hard to see, but, uh, but thank you for letting me give that, uh, do that experiment, see how it worked. Did you know that the miracle of parting the waters happened three more times in the Old Testament? You can read about it today if you'd like. You can find it in Joshua chapters three and four as the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River at flood time. And then in 2 Kings chapter two, you'll see Elijah and Elisha cross the Jordan together. And then after Elijah is taken up into heaven, then Elisha 
crosses the Jordan on his own. And so there are three more times. And each time, it's a miraculous event, and it says that they crossed on dry ground. Well, did the people learn their lesson? Did they ever again let their expectations get in the way of their faith? Well, it doesn't take much time here in Exodus to find out that, yeah, they had some more problems. Because like us, they had much to learn about how God leads, how he acts, and how he will bring about his will. They're described as stiff-necked people for whom lessons come hard. And the Old Testament is is a complete story of their highs and their lows. So flash forward with me many hundreds of years and we see that Israel has been at first captive to the Babylonians and then hard on the heels of the Babylonians come the Medes and the Persians and then after a brief respite, Alexander the Great begins to conquer the whole known world and the, the nation of Israel is subjected to the Greek idea of you must become just like us and worship our gods and speak our language. And then finally, the Roman Empire takes over from the Greeks and their idea of conquering is to demand tribute and ever-increasing taxes. And so their boot is firmly on the neck of Israel. And we see that at that point in time, the hope of the coming Messiah was strong. The prophecies concerning him throughout all of their scriptures were what gave them the power to continue. And yet, as Christians believe, when Jesus, the Messiah, came, he was rejected. And we see that it was the power of their expectations that blinded them. They believed that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. He would reign as king of the earth, that Jerusalem would become the center of the known world, and that God's laws would prevail. In short, they expected a powerful and majestic king. So when Jesus did miracles, why, the people were just flocking to him. Could he be that one? Even the disciples when we read in the New Testament, even the disciples began to debate among themselves who would receive the choice seats in the new kingdom. So one day Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was a high and exciting moment for the disciples. And yet, from that very moment on, Jesus began to tell them that he would go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the chief priests and scribes, and there he would be crucified. The disciples did not understand this. They felt that their Messiah had come and they were on the ground floor of his new kingdom. Don't talk like that, talk about the new kingdom. So when he died, nailed to a Roman cross, betrayed by his own leaders, who declared that it was better that one man die than the whole nation, they thought, 
it was the end. And we see a dispirited group of disciples in hiding. Little did they know, three days later, he would burst forth from the tomb and be the risen Savior. This is what Paul declared when he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. I don't know what your expectations are concerning this current world situation that we find ourselves in. I, don't, I do know that it is a time of uncertainty and the tendency to give in to fear is very great. But today I want to remind us that we are a people of faith. The scripture says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verses six through nine. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And that's what our focus is, to be faithful people whose aim is to please him in every way. So let's renew our commitment to, to one another to do these very things this morning. Let's pray for one another. Let's make an effort to contact one another. We can use the phone, we can use email. You can send a card. Let's be of good courage in our lives, expecting great things from God. Let's encourage one another to love and to good deeds. Let's pray for our pastor. Let's pray for our missionaries. Just this last week, I'm sure you read about missionaries who have been expelled from the field because the nation they are in wants all foreigners out. So we need to pray for our, our, our missionaries as well as our pastor. So with those words of encouragement today, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's clear to us that the parting of the sea is rooted in a very real place on earth. It is commemorated in scripture again and again. And it's clear evidence of the power that you have to care for your people. We also believe that you sent Jesus, your son, to be the sacrifice that makes us whole, that cleanses us from sin and restores us to a right relationship with you. We thank you for that priceless gift. And we pray this day for increased faith. Help us to walk by it day by day, hour by hour. Keep us from depending on what we can see. For when we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we are healed. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today is the first Sunday of the month and typically on the first Sunday of the month it is our traditional time of celebrating communion together. 
And so we invite you online, those of you that are out there in, in uh, cyberland, <laughs> to join us and be a part of this fellowship. Even though we can't be in the same space, we can be of one mind and one spirit. So we read about our communion in the instructions from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Perhaps you know that the first century church was accused of cannibalism. It was rumored that at their secret meetings, such people actually ate flesh and drank blood. Now you could understand how there would be a misunderstanding because of the symbolism that is a part of the communion service. Jesus truly came in the flesh. He was 100% human and 100% God at the exact same time. The day when he sacrificed his body on the cross, it was truly broken for you and for me. His blood was spilled as a sacrifice, one that speaks better than the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sin. So with his one-time sacrifice, Jesus has made we who are his forever holy in the sight of God. So while we are solemn on this occasion, we are also joyful as we celebrate what the Lord's done for us. You know that when we are able to gather all together, we typically have the elders and deacons gathered before us to serve the communion. And now in this day and age, we aren't able to pass those elements around to each other anymore. And typically I would ask one of the elders or deacons to pray, but I'll be doing that instead. So will you join me as we pray for the bread? Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to earth as a helpless baby. We thank you for loving us in this way. Thank you that, you can be, that we can be made free by your sacrifice on the cross. We celebrate you today and proclaim our love for you knowing that someday, perhaps soon, you will return again and our eyes will behold you, our King of heaven. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you would take the bread, let's take it together. Join me as we pray 
before we take the cup. Heavenly Father, scripture tells us that you gave your life as a ransom for many. Your life's blood was poured out on Calvary's tree. It is in your spilled blood, a rock of stumbling to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks that we are forgiven forever. And we celebrate this loving act that you did today. And we, we participate in this act by taking of the cup. And in so doing, we proclaim our love for you, our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the same way, let's take this cup together. Would you please stand as we get ready to close in prayer and, or in, the, in a benediction? I just want to remind you that it is also a custom on this first Sunday of the month to take a offering called the Sunshine Fund. It's the fund that is used by the deacons to help out uh, in, in our community. So if you would like to give uh, to that fund, you could make sure that you do that on the way out. Also, for those of you that are online, you can still use that same way that you have been supporting the church with your tithes and offerings to donate to that fund. Okay, let's close. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.